This episode is brought to you by Huertas, a Basque-influenced restaurant in NYC's East Village. Learn more at huertasnyc.com. That's H-U-E-R-T-A-S-N-Y-C.com. Welcome to Processing, a show about the intersection between food and grief, with your hosts, Sara Tangora and Bobby Conforto. On this show, we're going to really explore where grief and food intersect, how they go hand in hand, different people's experiences with their specific traumas and how food played a part from the beginning to the end of that experience. And how as individuals, we uniquely process life's traumas and losses through either the longing for, the creating of, the avoiding of, the obsessing over, and the eating of food. I remember right after Michael died, I still miss him, but I missed him so badly that night that I stopped at the convenience store on the corner and I bought a container of Ben and Jerry's Cherry Garcia. It's too sweet, you know, it's too everything. And I went home with it and I took it to bed and I thought to myself, gee, so this is my first menage a trois after Michael's death. <laughs> Me, Ben, and Jerry. And I ate the entire thing. What do you think your relationship to food was during times of crisis? I think that um, my sister and I use food to reward ourselves. I wish I had something more no, interesting to say, but definitely like spaghetti and meatballs and chocolate cake. <laughs> <laughs> my mom still can't eat rugula. It makes her too sad. I've also experienced a lot of loss, as has Bobby. And I think we really wanted to find a way where we could like, work together. There's something that feels very compelling about doing a project with you, Mom, um, as just kind of a missing piece in life and just something we've always wanted to do but not known quite how. can't think of anything better myself. I think that, I mean, any conversation about grief, I think, prepares everyone for grief because there are so few conversations about grief. It's why I think that yes. what you guys are doing is so important. <laughs> Good evening, and welcome to Eating Matters, where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us. I'm your host, Jenna Liute, and we're broadcasting from Roberta's on Heritage Radio Network. I am so pleased to welcome Brooklyn Borough President and 2021 mayoral candidate Eric Adams to the show. The borough president has put food issues and public health at the forefront of his political agenda. Today, we will be unpacking how he came to focus on these, these issues and what he's doing to create a better food system for all New Yorkers. Welcome to the show, Borough President Adams. Thank you. Thank you. If people haven't been here, this is a great experience. You know, <laughs> Roberta's. Roberta's. Yeah. Sitting out, looking at the people, you know, eating pizza and just really... Uh, hanging out. Yeah. It's, it's really nice. Sometimes it's uh, a little bit hard when I'm um, broadcasting and starving and I look <laughs> out, you know, and people are eating the most delicious food, um, some of the most delicious food in Brooklyn. So it's like um, uh, awesome and also very difficult. <laughs> I like that. Time. I like that. Um, okay. So as for those listeners, especially who live outside of the New York City area, can you give us an overview of the president or of the um, position 
of borough president and what role it plays in city government? Great question, because I'm often asked that question as I move throughout the country or even the globe. Mm -hmm. And in, in New York City, we have five uh, boroughs, five municipalities, some places, places we'll call it a village, a township, mm -hmm. and it makes up the city of New York, uh, not the state, but just in New York City. Uh, the five uh, locations is uh, Brooklyn, Bronx, Manhattan, Staten Island, and Queens. Brooklyn is the largest with, with 2.6 million people. And so we're uh, almost the county executive. That's a term that's often used. And it's our job to make sure that the borough receive their fair amount of resources, uh, governmental services. Uh, we also we have input in the land use process. So when someone wants to build in the borough, mm -hmm. we make a we make a recommendation on the size if they need to go larger than the zoning purposes. Uh, we also appoint members to the community boards. Those are our most local areas of government. And then just answering um, all of the services because government can be extremely intimidating to everyday people, particularly in the place like Brooklyn. 47% mm -hmm. of Brooklynites speak a language other than English at home. Oh, so if you're wow, trying at home, right, yeah. exactly. Yeah. If you're trying to navigate the Department of Education, Department of Sanitation, Homeless Services, when you're trying to navigate all of those entities, you really uh, find it difficult when you walk inside and no one is there that could understand how you, to address your everyday needs. So with almost the ombudsman of the local level of government where people can see. They can't get in the mayor's office all the time, mm -hmm. but they can get in the borough president's office all the time. Okay. And then how does that work with um, the like city council? How do you kind of interact with city council? You operate independently, right? Yes. The city council and the mayor, they actually, the city council will pass a law, the mayor will sign that law. Mm -hmm. I, as a borough president, I can also introduce laws through the city council and we have all resolution. Mm -hmm. And we have introduced several important laws and resolutions. One of the laws we um, were able to introduce is for lactation rooms to be in every uh, governmental building. So uh -huh. we introduced it. It was introduced by uh, Councilman Robbie Carnegie in partnership after it was passed, then it goes to the mayor. The mayor actually signed the law into existence. If he chooses not to, mm -hmm. uh, then the city council can override him with enough votes. But in this, this case, uh, the mayor embraced the law. But that is just an example of how we operate in partnership. Mm -hmm. Also, the city council will come to me because I get about $52 million a year in capital money. Wow. So I will partner with the city council for various programs and initiatives inside their councilmatic district. Mm -hmm. We have around about 13, 14 council people inside the borough of Brooklyn, and we will partnership in their councilmatic district. If they have a project they need additional funding for, we will assist them in having that project done. Okay. I should also mention that Brooklyn is the best borough <laughs> as, as a, as a, you know, decade long resident and <laughs> hope to be there for very, for much longer. Amazing um, place. Yeah. It's an amazing, amazing place. place. And, and, 
you know, different communities right now. We're in the Bushwick area, mm -hmm. uh, a very unique place. You know, a lot of new energy, a lot of new startups, mm -hmm. a lot of new foods and people. Uh, but as you move around the borough, each borough has its own signature, but it all falls under the narrative uh, of how we are continue to explore not only um, our experiences, but explore each other. Um, have you always been involved in politics? What is your background? I came from the police department. I, I have a strange background. <laughs> if you were to do an analysis of my life, uh, it really speaks volume of the evolution of a human being. Uh, I, I, I was a police officer, and I never wanted to be a police officer. I was a computer programmer. I wanted to um, open my own company and get Cisco qualified. But when I was a child, mm -hmm. I was beat bad by the police, and I became a, an advocate of police reform. I was able to meet a civil rights organization called the National Black United Front. Mm -hmm. Then a young man named Randolph Evans was shot and killed in Brooklyn. And they brought 13 of us together and told us that they wanted us to go into law enforcement. Some went into the Department of Corrections. Some went into the Transit Police, Housing Police, New York City Police Department. Mm -hmm. They wanted us to fight from within. I was traumatized at the thought of going yeah, into no the place right, yeah. that created my PTSD. <laughs> yeah. But in hindsight, they were right. Because in order for me really to fully recover yeah. from that, I had to go in and you know, really deal with, deal with that demasculation that I felt. And I became an advocate. I started an organization called 100 Blacks in Law Enforcement Who Care. Mm -hmm. And we were extremely vocal on dealing with issues of stop and frisk, police abuse. And out of that, it just the my name recognition became high. People saw me as a voice for the voiceless. And then I ran for state senate. Mm -hmm. uh, had over was overwhelmingly voted in to office and then I ran for the borough president and became the first person of color to be the borough president in Brooklyn. Wow, that's amazing. Very exciting and it was yeah. a great journey. Yeah, and when were you first voted into office? I was voted into the for, state for the for the borough president. In yeah, yeah. 2013 was okay. the election for the 2014 us uh, to be seated as the ball president. We served for two four years four year terms. Mm -hmm. I'm in the second term in two in two years and uh, we're now starting year three in January for my second term. Okay, and it should be said you were with the police department for decades. Yes, I yeah. served for 22 years. Uh, I was a police officer, police officer special assignment. Then went on to become a sergeant, a lieutenant, and I retired as a captain. Okay, wow. All right, we're gonna get to food issues in one minute, but <laughs> I do. I mentioned you are running for mayor. Yes. In 2021, how <laughs> how is that going? <laughs> very exciting. Very exciting. Yeah. It is. It is a Herculean task. You know, you really running for a citywide office in a city with over 8 million people and 20 million, million opinions is a <laughs> difficult task. <laughs> um, yeah. But it is very exciting. And, I, and, you know, I say all the time to people, uh, I would like to be mayor, but I don't need to be mayor. Mm -hmm. uh, being mayor is the consolation prize. To me, the real prize is the journey. It's almost an alchemist moment where I'm not focusing on the house I'm in. I'm, foc I'm not focusing on the spoon of the oil. I'm focusing on the house I am in. Yeah. This journey has taken me throughout the entire city, and it's the diversity of this journey is really reflected in the contributions that I receive. 
you have to raise a lot of money to yeah. run citywide. Yeah. I, I'm disappointed in that. This was a great opportunity for us to take money out of politics. I, I was hoping that the mayor and the city council would no longer uh, allow people to raise money, but they didn't. Yeah. And so we have to go with the, the you know the rules that are in the in place. But when you do an analysis of the almost over three million dollars that I raised. Uh, it's clearly a diverse group of people, large number of Koreans, Chinese, people from Uzbekistan, Russian-speaking, Jewish, African-American, Caribbean. I'm a United Nations candidate. Yeah, I was going to say you were very reflective <laughs> of the New York popu population. Yes, and and we're now at the, the role where we are building on our base. Uh, Brooklyn is my base. It's the largest borough, mm -hmm. one of the largest number of voters. I grew up in Queens for a period of time. My mother's still there. Mm -hmm. So I'm actually one of the unique candidates that I have two large boroughs that I can tap into to, yeah. to run for office. Yeah. Um, okay, so... Uh, you're really interested in food. I think you know a lot of people are like, why? Why are you on a food <laughs> podcast right now, right? And um, unfortunately, this is not the case for most politicians, right? A lot of a lot of politicians don't talk about food at all. Um, so, how did this become a major focus for you? Part of that evolution, is, I think, is the Eric Adams evolution. Sometimes people look at you and they see your glory, but they don't know your story. Mm -hmm. And food is a major part of my evolution. In fact, food saved my life. Uh, several years ago, I was diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. I had um, vision loss in my left eye, and I was losing sight in my right. And oh I had perma From, permanent... Wow. Right. No, it yeah. was intense. I couldn't even see the alarm clock um, when I woke up that morning. And I had an ulcer, high blood pressure, uh, cholesterol issue, issues, um, prostate issues, just a whole accumulation of, you know, body falling apart. Yeah, and, you, were, and you were a mess. A, a complete <laughs> mess. And I looked fine. Yeah. Uh, but I needed to take an internal selfie. My body was breaking down internally, like many people mm -hmm. uh, in America, uh, when you look at it. And little did I know, when I went to the doctor, I thought it was I had um, colon cancer because the pain in my stomach was not moving. And when I went to the doctor, he did a, a he examined my colon and examined my stomach. Mm -hmm. um, and when I came out of sedation, he says, Eric, you have an ulcer, but your real issue is your diabetes. Your A1C is a 17. That's at a com coma level. I need to put you on medication right away. Mm -hmm. And uh, I need to put you on insulin right away to inject yourself and to take uh, pills. And my first reaction was that well, Eric, you knew it was coming. Your mother's diabetic. Your brothers and sisters are either diabetic or pre-diabetic. Your, your family members, it runs in your families. And I say that with a quote. But I decided to do something I say extremely uh, scientific. I went to Google mm -hmm. and Google reversing <laughs> diabetes. You know, so instead of, yes. and it was very fascinating. Instead of saying living with diabetes, because that's, that's the theme, something inside me said that, wait a minute, why can't we reverse this? Mm -hmm. And I came up with, um, with a number of doctors, Drs. Esselton in Ohio, Cleveland Clinic, Dr. Bonner, Dr. Greger, a number of doctors, and I was able to reach Dr. Esselton, and he told me to fly down to see him. Now, this is prior to visiting five of the best doctors in the city who all told me, this is your... Uh, prognosis, this is the life, you will be on medicine the rest of your like life. Like a life sentence. Uh, that's it, mm -hmm. you know. And 
when I got to Ohio and spoke with uh, Dr. SC, as we, we call him, uh, he told me that uh, you could reverse it, Eric. You just have to change your food that you're eating. And I remember saying to him, hey, what's wrong with this nut? I'm going <laughs> blind and he's telling me not yeah. to eat hamburgers anymore, yeah. you know? Yeah. Uh, but I knew I had nothing else to lose. And you know what was fascinating? When I, when I returned to the city, looking at the things he told me I should start consuming, I looked through my refrigerator and I had nothing in there that was healthy. And mm-hmm. my pantry, everything was processed. Everything was, uh, when I started looking at the labels and, and realizing that, wow, you know, subconsciously, I didn't even realize that I was just eating processed food. And so three weeks after going to a whole food plant-based diet, mm-hmm. my vision came back. Wow. Three months later, my nerve damage went away, my ulcer went away, my blood pressure normalized, my cholesterol normalized, my PSA normalized to 1.1. I dropped uh, 35 pounds over a um, five to six months period. And just a total uh, reversal of my condition. And it really inspired my mom, who was diabetic for 15 years, seven years on insulin. She went whole food plant-based. And she still struggles with the food because what it is. But mom was off her insulin in two months um, after all those years and many of her meds. And so I started to understand the power of food. And now we're on this amazing journey of how do we also show other people not to beat them, Uh, Not to talk down to them, not to expect for them to do the same things that I'm doing. But people should have options. If you go to your doctor, the doctor should let you know treatment choices. Mm -hmm. You know, they tell you your treatment choices. If you have cancer, you can do surgery or you can do chemo. You know, we should do the same choices when it comes down to health. Mm -hmm. We should let people know that, hey, you can go on the medication or you can go on a lifestyle um, medicine and we don't do that and that is my goal to start giving families choices yeah there's definitely a big divide I mean there's the medical community I feel like I don't even know the extent to which I don't think it's a lot doctors are trained in nutrition issues and so it's something that there's still just so much room for improvement even in like the medical school process that that could like influence doctors you know advice kind of for their patients moving forward that's well that's well said and that is the space that we're in now we have had amazing conversations and when i look back over um, where we are now from where we were three years ago and we um you know lobbied the city and the mayor uh, got on board we're no longer serving processed meat um, in our schools, processed meat is a type one carcinogen, according to the WHO, mm-hmm. equivalent to cigarettes. So if we don't give our children Marlboros in the morning. Why are we giving them processed meat? Mm-hmm. We're also having a 50% beef reduction. The mayor's getting ready to sign uh, the order of purchasing in the city. Beef reduction mm-hmm. is important because beef is what's really behind the Amazon fires. A lot of people are not making the connection to the destruction of not only our mothers, but Mother Earth based on what we consume every day. Mm-hmm. And we're also moving in the direction of having meatless Mondays in our correctional facilities, our, ho- our hospitals, our schools. We're talking to ACS about the food we serve children that are going through trauma and how the right food can really address that trauma. Mm-hmm. So we're really having a new conversation and we're partnering 
um, with our hospitals. We have an amazing program at Bellevue Hospital, first of its kind in America, lifestyle medicine. We have about 170 people who are in the program. Mm -hmm. um, over uh, close to 700 people are signed up on the waiting list and is showing people how to cycle off their medication, how to have lifestyle management based on food, the power of food. Yeah. So getting back to your experience in term, or you know, your desire to kind of encourage doctors to offer more uh, like dietary advice for specific, all you know, for di uh, diabetes and other kind of conditions. So that leads me. I want to kind of delve into some of the work that you have done around food, but first. I want to, I think it's important to acknowledge, um, so for full disclosure on this question, mm -hmm. I worked in the health department and then at the mayor's office under the Bloomberg administration okay. doing food <laughs> policy work specifically. So I'm kind of, um, you know, giving a plug for, <laughs> you know, the work I was fortunate to be. Which was an amazing time. Of. Yeah, it was you an know, amazing we, time. We had, an, we had a, under the administration you were there, we had a three-year life expectancy lifespan increase. Yeah. Of, you know, your administration that you were in was far ahead around the cigarette smoking issue. You yeah. saved lives because of stopping cigarette smoke smoking inside, uh, the sugar battle. Uh, you were so far ahead. The administration was so far ahead. People said it was a nanny uh, state that was yeah. being created, and it wasn't. Yeah. You know, it was impacting the social determinants of health, and that was so important. You should really be proud of being a part of that because that started the conversation, yeah. and many of us were really too ignorant to understand the full scope of how the things we were doing every day was actually not only destroying the, the fiber in the economy, but it was also destroying the human being. Yeah, well, thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> um, I think it's always, you know, I mean, my question to you is, yeah, like what, I mean, because you're so um, closely in touch with your constituents and, um, you know, I just was wondering kind of like the the impacts that you have seen some of those policies make on your constituents. And then I want to talk about all of the other work that is, <laughs> is left to, to right, be done. So right. you think like this, you know, smoking and what about like personal impacts that you have seen for it, people? It's amazing. Uh, you know, the lifeline, there's, there's nothing I believe that's more powerful than drowning in the sea of uncertainty and believing uh, this is your life. Watching your mother, your father life just erode before your eyes and then you receive the same diagnosis. You relive, relive the trauma of what's expected. And then you come to one of our uh, vegan uh, 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 plant-based curious meetups and you hear these conversations you hear this real person named eric adams that you watch grow up and you saw the you know just the frailty of going through my experience and then you're able to identify and we're throwing lifelines to people and they're going from a state of hopelessness to a state of empowerment and i cannot tell you the level of joy when i received that text that hey um i'm now off my uh, my insulin uh, or, hey, I'm now off my blood pressure medicine. And we're just hearing people are now taking control of their bodies and their doctors are no longer uh, the center of their health care, but they're part of their health advisory team. Yeah. And it is, it's extremely exciting uh, just to watch and see this every day as we go to senior centers and tell people the power of spices. 
You know, yeah. people don't even realize the power of cumin, the power of cinnamon, the power of turmeric and pepper mixed together and how your liver liver absorbs it. The, the power of all of these spices. Only spice I knew was sugar and salt. Yeah, you know? yeah. And so we are really uh, starting this really grassroots effort mm-hmm. of awakening the spirit of people. So are you... Um, are most of your initiatives well first of all what does plant-based mean to you i mean you are vegan right vegan in the sense that you don't eat any animal products whatsoever yes um so when we talk about kind of plant-based initiatives are you talking about promoting a vegan diet are you talking about promoting a diet that is more vegetable forward and like seriously limits kind of animal that's a great question because i think oftentimes i think the biggest mistake we make in communication is that we actually believe it took place yeah, <laughs> and, and we don't ask questions anymore to get clarity because what could mean to me may be different to someone else. Mm-hmm. And I, I consider myself to be a plant, whole food, plant-based eater. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't fall under the category of just a vegan because let's you know to, to be honest, Oreo cookies are is vegan also. I don't consider them to be healthy. Mm-hmm. Coca Cola is vegan. Yeah. I don't consider it to be healthy. I'm a whole food plant-based eater, uh, and I understand the passion of some people are vegans because of uh, lifestyle health issues. Some are vegan because of the altruism of taking care of animals. I embrace the importance of taking care of animals. That's why we wrote a very important, we did a video video around what's happening in the Amazon, the burning of the Amazon, mm-hmm. and the connections of, of, of cattle feed and raising cattle. Uh, that is why we're pushing for the processed meat argument. So I'm in the place of I want the planet holistically to be whole. Mm-hmm. But my preference is a whole food, plant-based diet. I eat um, whole foods, plant-based. Like mm-hmm. this morning, I had a nice green smoothie yeah. um, with some karab powder and some other maca powder and some other great stuff. That's how I start my day every day. Yeah. And then when I do my lunch thing, it's mixed with uh, lentil noodles, uh, you know, some kale, some broccoli, some garlic, mushrooms, um, uh, black beans. And so I have a very full, tasty diet yeah. that I believe, and it's meat-free. I believe that the whole food plant base is the way to go, and my body is reflective of that. And what about dinner? Dinner, dinner. Yeah. I, I sometimes I do because I'm always on the go. I'm always going somewhere. Yeah, you have quite the schedule. <laughs> I have to say. And there's an art to doing this as a public figure. Yeah, you certainly. You know, because I'm always at places where people put food in front of me, and so I eat before I go to an event, yeah. or I'm a master at looking at menus and bringing together some of those side orders to make a main dish. And people will look at my dish that I created from the side orders, and they say, wait a minute, I want what Eric has. You yeah. know? But I, for dinner, I would do a combination of things. I would, I would make um, bread out of uh, flax seeds, uh, banana, and sweet potato. I'll make a nice little, nice little bread, and or I'll do some type of wrap uh, or, or lentil burger or a black bean burger with mushrooms, mm-hmm. or I would do something with tofu. So I would mix it up. Yeah. And just really have a great meal. You know what's fascinating? When I when I told folks I was I was whole food plant based, mm-hmm. they'd say, Well, you have to be 
bored because all you eat is kale, kale, kale. No, no, no. in reality, I was bored the way I was eating before. Ham yeah. I would have hamburgers on Mondays, you know, meatloaf on Tuesday, lasagna on Wednesday. It was the same thing. We just don't realize it. Yeah. And now my food source is, is so exciting. It's so diverse. Every Sunday I study a new spice. I study the impact of the spice where it came from, why it's important, and I try my experiments in meals. I make a great ice cream. Um, oh, wow. Right, out of, out of you know, frozen bananas and frozen fruits, and I put a little cacao powder in it. So it is a real excite. I have never been so excited about food the way I am now. Do you, when you go to like the pancake breakfast, when, you know, when you went there, <laughs> I mean, because you're, you're, yes, I imagine your schedule is full of food events. Yeah. Do you ever get the pushback of like, like he's elitist in that, the way that he's what eating? What a question. I love that question. Well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Especially in communities of color. Yeah. Because we are really shattering the myth that veganism, uh, plant-based food, healthy food is, quote unquote, a white thing. Yeah. You know, so, you know, during the holidays when I'm with family and we're sitting around the table and mom would say, well, you know, Eric is not eating that. People would say, oh, you think you're white? You, you know, you think you, you know, you're better than everyone else. And then when I really break down to them that that food around the table we call soul food is slave food. The slave masters fought us, uh, forced us to eat the food. We were forced to learn how to fry chicken and make it sound good. We were forced to eat chitlins because those were the, the, the scraps. So huh. when people start making the connection yeah. and understanding that some of the health crises that they're receiving, like a Ken Thompson, 50 years old, first African-American um, district attorney in a bar of Brooklyn, he died from colorectal cancer. Uh, that's food related. Uh, Jesse yeah. Jackson is now going through Parkinson's disease. I sent him the book, How Not to Die. Um, <laughs> you know, this is... This is all food-related yeah. items. You know, those who are experiencing, um, you know, dementia and Alzheimer's, we're bringing up one of the top specialists around food and Alzheimer's to show people um, how they can either either prevent or reverse or even stop in some of those stages of Alzheimer's. And so I start engaging in a real conversation with my families and friends to show how we were trained to poison ourselves through the food. Because yeah. food is more than what you put in your mouth. Mm -hmm. People connect it. When I go after that apple pie, that same apple pie that a person used to make with their favorite aunt, they feel, you attacking my aunt right yeah, now. Yeah, you know? yeah. <laughs> and there's certain places, when I go into, into the households of my Italian friends and their mothers are like, you know, it's almost an insult that you're not yeah. eating the food. And so by showing people gradually and not, again, being aloof about it, but engaging in a real comfortable conversation yeah. of showing alternatives, you know, instead of having this, why don't you try that? And that is how I'm bringing people in the right direction. I love that. <laughs> so, I mean, it's a, such an important point. It's a, it's a cultural shift. And I think that is... Um, just really, I love how you kind of re you're reframing the conversation. All right. We have to take a really quick commercial break to hear a word from our sponsors, but we will be back in just a minute. Stay tuned. This episode is brought to you by Huertas. Huertas serves Basque influenced fare 
evoking the lively eating and drinking culture of northern Spain and creatively inspired by our home in NYC. Consider Huertas for your next event. Their private room is perfect for work dinners, baby showers, and birthday parties. There's even a small patio attached. Learn more at huertasnyc.com. That's H-U-E-R-T-A-S-N-Y-C.com. And we're back. We're today. I am so pleased to be joined by Brooklyn Borough President Eric Adams. I have another question about cultural shifts because we as Americans, like collectively, are conditioned in this country to expect food to be cheap, very cheap. And that, of course, comes at enormous cost, as you have told us about, you know, from a public health and your personal um, experience, as well as, you know, all the way back, you know, through the through the supply chain to the farmer who is struggling to make ends meet. So what do you think is necessary to move the needle on this issue in terms of educating people that so that food should be more expensive because right now it doesn't reflect the cost of production and it is coming at these enormous costs. And I think that's like a tough, it's probably a really hard thing to say as a politician that we should be spending more on food. How, how do you respond to that? How do you it's teach so people? true. So <coughs> we we are failing to understand there used to be this commercial I think it was an oil change commercial when they say you could either pay now or you could pay more later yeah. and we manage cities in America in a crisis mode uh, Archbishop Desmond Tutu stated that we spend a lifetime pulling people out of the river no one goes upstream to find out why they fell in in the first place mm-hmm. People are falling in the river of healthcare crises because we're not preventing them from falling in in the first place. It is cheaper to give people access to healthy food than to wait for them to fall into the emergency room. We spend 80 cents on a dollar in uh, chronic diseases in America. 30 million Americans have diabetes. 84 million are pre-diabetic, on deck, waiting for their time at bat to have diabetes. Seven millions were like me, did not know they had diabetes. If we become more proactive, then we won't be spending an unsustainable amount of money on healthcare. And that unsustainability is not only due to the physical part of medicine, but the trauma. You know, we are losing productivity in our office spaces. The trauma of knowing you have to put your loved one inside hospice or go back and forth to the hospital. Our children missing days from uh, asthma and childhood diabetes. Uh, All of this trauma that's being built is really impacting the quality of life of Americans on on the whole. So my goal uh, here as the borough president is to do four things. One, uh, food must taste good. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a reason that we are hardwired to enjoy taste. So we are showing people how to use the right combination of food to get that taste you look look for. It must look good. Yeah. Use the creativity because before we decide what we eat, we decide with our eyes if it's edible. Mm-hmm. And we're showing people how to make it a very attractive place. Then it must be good for you nutritionally. Mm-hmm. And we are showing to understand the nutrition, what you're eating, how is it going to nourish uh, your body. But lastly and most importantly, it must be cost effective and accessible. Yeah. 
And part of what we're doing is showing people how to go through the grocery store, how to buy those bag of dry beans that not only can be part of a casserole, but they can be a lentil burger or black bean burger. Um, how to stretch your, your food in the interim. Then push legislation that every school should have accessibility to three meals a day. Every a homeless shelter, we should not be giving people bologna sandwiches that we're feeding the crisis, but we should be giving them good, healthy, nutritional food. And our uh, various food pantries, we are supplying food to people who are in need, who are fighting diseases. We're giving them food that is unhealthy for them to consume. And we need to change that dynamic. And if we do it earlier, mm -hmm. then we won't deal with the crisis on the other end. So a lot of your a lot of your initiatives, it sounds like, um, are uh, kind of deal with procurement, city procurement, which is I would say the the best place to start because you have the biggest opportunity for impact. Um, seeing that we serve, I don't know, like, what was it like three hundred or two hundred and sixty million meals uh, every year uh, as a city, which is I mean astronomical is enormous, right? It's, <laughs> right, it's like right, crazy. Right. Um, uh, but I'm wondering if there are other initiatives kind of in the food space that like in, in beyond um, or in addition to kind of promoting healthier diets education. that you are working on. Education is crucial. Well, uh, we have to start educating our children about the power of food. We need to look at the urban farming, which is a multi-billion dollar industry. Mm -hmm. uh, we're putting a lot of money into hydroponics to show children how to grow food in their school. I believe every school in the city should have either a rooftop garden so children can grow their food and serve it in the cafeteria or inside one of the classrooms. Uh, we made a great partnership with Democracy Academy where we gave them these little pods that we partnered with Farm Shelf. And this is very interesting because they're learning how to grow uh, vegetables inside their classroom. And the teacher stated, the principal, she said these were this was a school where it was an alternative high school. She stated that, Eric, these children are now here every day on time because they want to be part of this initiative. And so it's our goal is to educate the next generation about what food and what food pro productivity should look like. How do we localize food? We, take, we can take trucks off our roads. We can create partnerships here locally. Uh, that is our goal, to really move in the direction that we can have locally grown food that won't lose its nutritional value because it's leaving Florida and one week and getting here another two, three weeks later. We want to show how do you grow locally, and we believe urban farming is a way to go, and, and bridging technology mm -hmm. uh, with that is a real win. Yeah, I mean, I was going to ask... Um, uh, what, I mean, one of the things I wanted to talk about. So you're talking about hyperlocal. Yes. Um, one of the things I was curious about is that there has been kind of a historic divide between like urban-rural divide, mm -hmm. and it's something that um, I think in general continues to widen, especially as more people throughout the country uh, continue to move to live in urban areas right now. So are there ways that you are planning as mayor um, that to address this this divide and kind of help bridge the gap? And we can. You know, I was a former state senator and I traveled all over the state 
and looked at some of our great farms. I think we need to encourage our farmers uh, to look at some of the crops that they are producing. How do we create these partnerships uh, locally and allow young people from the in, inner city, um, young people from Brownsville should visit Binghamton. Yeah. Um, you know, we have this division that exists right within inside our state. And I want to encourage those partnerships. So when we look uh, to purchase apples, uh, we could purchase right here in the state of, state of New York. And we should look at how do we encourage farmers to look at a more healthier a crop than I believe we're producing now. And some of our local farmers markets, mm-hmm. great opportunities for partnerships uh, in that way also. And get them in the room and find out what can we be, what can we do better? How do we remove the barriers that prevent the exact communication that we need? Uh, to produce a better partnership, a better relationship. Mm-hmm. Certainly procurement is one one way that can, I would imagine, be expanded in terms Without of resourcing it. The, 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 as you stated, the number of meals just in the DOE alone, we, we feed 960,000 meals a day. Yeah. Uh, there are great opportunities to do a better job in procurement. Um, okay, so I want to talk about an issue that's near and dear to my heart, which is food waste. Um The sanitation department has um, called recycling the biggest new opportunity not yet tapped. And um, as of 2017, um, which is, I think, the last year we have a robust report, like they've issued like a robust report on um, the status of organic organics collection, 1.2 percent out of 1.2 percent out of more than one million tons of organic waste is tossed out. And that's just like. You know, we're not doing a really, that's all to say, we're not doing a really great job with organics collection (laughs) at all. So I'm wondering if this is something that you would address as mayor and how would you go about doing it and how can we pay for it? Uh, Our hearts must beat as one because this is dear to my heart as well. It's right on time and I think it's so important. And not only do we talk about it, Mm -hmm. um, we are clearly um, being about it. Uh, we have a uh, composting program at Borough Hall where we collect our straps. Uh, mm-hmm. We wanted to put a place a composting bin outside to really allow our visitors to have an opportunity to understand the power of refurbishing and reusing uh, our food waste. We fall behind um, other states like San Francisco's yeah. and, and, and others, but we have to stop playing with this. We have to have a real clear mission. And then there's also a divide based on ethnicity. Why aren't we in NYCHA more? Why aren't we empowering NYCHA residents on the power of how do we reuse waste? Um, I think that it needs to be mandatory. Mm-hmm. Uh, we toyed with this for a long time. It's time to make sure that it is required uh, for us to uh, reuse uh, not only food waste, but even construction waste. Uh, any college students will tell you even about um, binge diving, a uh, bin diving, you know, where you stand outside a store and go inside. The CVS, the Dwayne Reeves, they're throwing out supplies yeah. uh, that are not even, you know, really expired. They're close to a date or they could be partially damaged. If we create those partnerships with those uh, various entities like Campaign Against Hunger, 
those partnerships can already have a pre-existing pipeline to give uh, the products that we need to re re reuse and renew. But I think one of the most important things you, we can do is make this required yeah. and no longer uh, leave it in the place of being optional. Mm -hmm. The Department of Sanitation could do a much better job than what they're doing. And the only way we're going to do it is to make it a mandate and a prior priority. Yeah. For for residents. It yes. is it is a it is a mandate for commercial. Mm -hmm. And it's not and the residents and even even the commercial. Yeah. Um the lack of enforcement is a way of saying it's not mandated. Mm -hmm. Enforcement needs to be clear and that we are going to hold people to the standard that we expect and it needs to be mandated for the residents at, at, at the same time. And then we need to incentivize as well. Yeah. How do we incentivize people uh, to go about uh, ensuring that they are ensuring that th we are refurbishing not only, again, the food uh, to use it by um, um, having uh, to grow and for our soil, but also some of the products that could be uh, separated that we don't do a good job at doing. Yeah. Then we also have to make sure that the haulers are actually bringing it to composting facilities because there's been a lot of issues where, I mean, same with recycling, you yes. know, like it just sort of gets dumped, like it's collected and then it's just kind of dumped and there's a, a lack of facilities in the area now, especially for composting to process. So. And, and that's why I say enforcement is important. Yeah. You know, my big sentence and belief, you have to inspect what you expect or it's all suspect. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, have you worked with other borough presidents to enact changes in their in the other boroughs? Have how have you kind of partnered um, with others to be able to like make a, a bigger impact, or is that right. or no, do you kind of operate independently? No, we 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 really like each other. Ruben Diaz, Gail Brewer, uh, Jimmy Otto's, uh, Melinda Katz, who's no longer the borough president, she's now the district attorney. Mm -hmm. But we have a great relationship, and we come together around different issues. Uh, Jimmy Otto in Staten Island, in Staten Island he and I, uh, we're now looking at uh, changing the time that children sh should start school days, particularly high school students. It's making a major impact. Uh, they're starting too early. They're losing sleep. Yeah. And it's really impact on uh, their health. Uh, we look at, Ruben Diaz and I are really looking at the conversation around healthy foods. They're dealing with some serious health issues in the Bronx, similar to some locations here in the borough of Brooklyn. So we're really looking at um, how do we change the conversation around that. They have a great organization in the Bronx called the Green Bronx Machine, yeah. where they're doing healthy food inside the school, growing healthy food, an amazing leader up there. And Gail Brewer, who is really a partner for all of us, we're looking at um, how do we really empower our young people. She has one of the best internship programs that we all duplicate. So we do a lot of things together. Yeah. We, we enjoy coming together. We try to get together five times a year. Each borough president will host a gathering. Oh, that's lovely. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's really nice. Yeah. And we really get along very well. Yeah, that's that's great. Stephen Retz, who runs, who started uh, Bronx Green Machine, has been uh, on this show before. So he's, <laughs> great. Yeah, he's a good guy. He's a good guy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. International yeah. fame now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He's really, <laughs> as he should be, you know, it's important, I think, for work like that to be yes. to be um, promoted. So, <laughs> yeah, he's he's great. Okay, we have time for a couple more questions. Mm -hmm. um, the fr I want to talk about um, engaging the private sector. So it's, it's, in my opinion, super important to not have this work just in, you know, in a, in a vacuum. And I think often 
that happens where like food advocates just talk to food advocates and, <laughs> you know, and, you know, government is, it's like a push pull between that and the private sector. And so I'm wondering um, how you would kind of plan on ad- addressing, you know, those issues and engaging the the private sector, specifically around startups also. I think there's an enormous opportunity um, with some of the work that startups are doing in the city. And, and you're right, uh, particularly here in Brooklyn. In Brooklyn, I believe yeah. between uh, 2008 and 2018, we had a 356% startup wow. here in a, bor- in a borough. And you're, you're, you're right. How do we engage uh, people to see uh, that not only do they have a corporate responsibility to their clients and to uh, their sh- uh, stockholders, but also it's part of the responsibility. Your stockholder, your employee, uh, your clients, uh, they also either benefit or they're hurt uh, by how we waste food or waste supplies or waste of uh, things we throw away. And so those partnerships are important. I think it's important to bridge technology uh, to make sure that we have real analysis and use some of the expertise uh, that's available. But it's also to have pre-existing alignments of those nonprofits that are doing things. You have nonprofits for just in the construction industry that they are reusing construction waste. So we shouldn't have to wait until uh, that company is discarded in a bin or in front of the, the construction project where we're throwing away wood, we're throwing away uh, stone, we're throwing away items. If we already have those pre-existing organizations with nonprofits who are doing building, who are assisting people in their repairs of their homes or, or low-income entities, you can automatically bridge those relationships. And that is what we must become more proactive and not reactive. Mm-hmm. And so we need, we're in this together. Uh, that partnership is real. And it is my goal to show my corporate entities just how important it is on a granular level to mm-hmm. partner with some of these small nonprofits that are doing amazing uh, work with just a small amount of resources and they can help in doing so. Um, okay, so you have a new initiative that I want to talk about that, mm-hmm. um, did it just launch today? Yes, today will be the first. Uh, it's called um, Breaking Bread, Building Bonds. Um, all of us were horrified to see the number of hate crimes that have increased in our city, particularly on Jewish residents, mm-hmm. uh, to see the drawing of swastikas, to see the assaults it's on awful. people from yeah. the city community. Yeah. Uh, and so our goal is to have 100 dinners all over the city, uh, 10 individuals per dinner, and each person around the table will come from a different background, lifestyle, or ethnicity, or culture. And they will have an opportunity individually to talk about their culture. You know, if it's a member from the LGBT community, if it's a member from a Jewish community or the Nepalese community, and just take a moment and explain some of the basic tenements of their culture and go around the table and then give people some take-home assignments. Go visit a museum, a neighborhood, or a place that was helped reinforce the culture, what book, which is a good book to read, what is a good movie mm-hmm. uh, that would give some understanding of the culture, and just really engage people on how, how to communicate with each other. We're in a diverse city and borough, yeah. but the sad part is that we live in silos. 
and we don't talk to each other. We don't communicate with each other. We don't know much about each other. Many of us don't even know our neighbors. We don't know why someone wears a yarmulke, kufi, or hijab. Uh, We don't know why there's a sukkah or people wants to uh, have a Diwali holiday. Mm -hmm. All of these things are known within our own silos. I am saying, let's step outside these silos. As the borough president, every day I wake up and say, wow, I get to do this again. I'm able to go into all of these communities and people are missing out. I never forget uh, a few years ago, I was at a yeshiva uh, with a group of young children in a Sephardic community. They were talking to a a group of children in Beijing through Google uh, chat hangout. Yeah. And when they finish, I said, you, you're talking to people across the globe. Have you ever spoken to an African-American in Brownsville? And they said, no, they never met an African-American person and had a relationship with. And if I asked that same question in Brownsville, that do they know someone in Borough Park? They would say the same thing. Mm-hmm. That can't happen. Yeah. And that is what these dinners are about. We want young people to be a part of it. We don't want the everyday leaders because everyday leaders, they're already talking to each other. Yeah. I want my child from Brownsville to talk to my child from Brown, from Borough Park, my yeah. child from Williamsburg to talk to the young person um, from Canarsie so that we can start creating this real sense of, I know you, I'm not afraid of you because yeah. you are just like me. I love that. Oh, what a, what a, what a fun cool initiative. Um, All right. So with every guest on the show, I always ask their opinion um, about how listeners can get more involved in the topic of discussion for that day. And inevitably, I think without fail, every single one says to lobby their elected officials to focus more on prioritizing food issues. You are one of the very few who's already doing so, which I obviously greatly appreciate. So thank you. Um, in your opinion, how can we get others to follow suit on what you're doing? C- come up with, first of all, the listeners should be clearly uh, educated on what they would like them to carry out because mm-hmm. elected officials are inundated with so many different issues. Yeah. And when you are very clear and specific with some clear directions, here is what I need for you to do, that elected official is more likely to follow up because he doesn't have to try to figure out exactly um, what is being asked. And so if there's some clear initiative, uh, more healthy foods in schools, here's ways you can do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, more healthy foods in hospital, uh, here are ways you can do it. And then become part of the team. My yeah. volunteer base is so powerful. A lot of my ideas come from my volunteers. Go to your local electives. Find out who your council person, who your state senator, the assembly person, and go into the office and say, I would like to volunteer. It could be an hour a week. Mm-hmm. It can be, you know, five days a week. Whatever you can do, it allows you not to be outside looking in, but you're actually around the table. Sometimes people believe because they're not paid staff that mm-hmm. they don't they don't have input that is not true my greatest initiatives and ideas they're coming from everyday people who are dedicated and committed to a certain subject area and they're now joining the team and they're carrying them out we're doing a great initiative called female genital mutilation fgm that we got legislation introduced and hopefully it will be passed mm-hmm. this came from 
a group of young people who wanted to see something done about this issue and they've moved the process forward and now we actually have Helen Rosenthal and Laurie Combo, the majority leader, is introducing a bill that was born from just everyday young people. Yeah. We're doing an initiative right now around sex trafficking and human trafficking. Straight from young people who had experienced this or heard about loved ones who have gone through this, now they are part of this major initiative. And a lot of the food things we're doing, uh, we had the first Black Veg Fest in uh, Brooklyn to introduce people of color to the whole beauty of being a vegan or plant-based. That came from someone that wasn't on my staff outside that came and sat down. Yeah. All you want from your elected is to be willing to listen and to move forward on some of these great ideas. So I encourage people, go visit your elected, demand that they hear you, mm -hmm. and that you're able to move through some of these important initiatives, but you should be part of the game. Oh, that's wonderful. So how can our Brooklyn-based listeners um, engage you if they have any things they would love to see you focus <laughs> on? You hold regular um, like office hours, right? Yes, if yes. You, if you will, off a of quote unquote. Yes. Yes, yes we have we have we, we have irregular hours. I'm in the office seven days a week. Yeah. All day. You know, sometimes people will meet me nine o'clock at night because they are employed during the day. I think it's important to stay informed by being among the people who are really um, put you in office. You can't be a good shepherd if you do not hang out with the sheeps. And so I, <laughs> I stay among the people all the time. And so they can reach out to me through Ask Eric. Mm -hmm. um, that comes to, right directly to my office, and we respond to every email re we receive. Mm -hmm. Or they can actually come to Borough Hall and ask, can they schedule an appointment? We give them a link where it goes to a Google Doc where I look at every day and coordinate to be able to meet because as you can imagine uh, Brooklyn is a big borough yeah. and if you don't have proper coordination a lot of things will slip through the crack but we are accessible I pride myself on being one of the most accessible elected officials we're on a train sometimes I take the subway all the time and I'll stop and see a constituent and ask me a question that's well here's my cell number yeah. and my my staff they go crazy <laughs> <laughs> But, yeah, but it's, a way, it's, it's a way to really, at least your first entry should be me, and then I could direct you to the right place. But if you took time to talk to me, I want to take time to let you know I am listening. Great. Okay, final question. Where can people follow your campaign and learn more about your stances on everything? Eric Adams 2021 is our website. We're going to continue to populate the information. We will be rolling out some white papers to have a clear understanding of what my thoughts are. Mm -hmm. uh, I believe just as my doctors incorrectly attempted to diagnose each one of my ailments by giving me different medication, I think that's how we run this city. We try to treat all of these ailments independently and it's not. The issue is that foundationally we're dysfunctional and we need to stop throwing people into the river and then pulling some of them out downstream. We have to change that model. All right. Thank you so much for joining thank me on the you. show today. This was this was so much fun. <laughs> thank you. Thanks. Um, okay. I want to give a big thanks to our sponsor, of course. Our show engineer is Jeet Paul, and music is by Tim Archer. All episodes of Eating Matters are available on Heritage Radio Network's website or as a podcast wherever they're found. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe. Leave me a comment and let me know what you think. I'm Jenna Liute, and thank you for listening. 
Eating Matters is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right-hand side of our homepage. Thanks for listening.